This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome to MIT. I know some people are from here at the MIT community and from CMS, and some of you are joining us from who knows where. Um, we have uh, Jim Ross, good old JR, uh, here today to speak to the uh, Comparative Media Studies Colloquia series. Um, we're going to do a Q&A, but I wanted to start, especially since this room, as any room is at MIT, can be quite hard to find. We're going to start by watching a couple of uh, clips. We have a promotional, a promotional package that WWE sent us uh, this morning just to give you a broad overview of their business. And uh, then we're going to watch a couple of clips of Jim Ross on screen just to give you an idea of, uh, from a performance perspective, what, uh, what JR does for a living. And uh, uh, I'll be asking some of the initial questions, but this is a Q&A that will be uh, filled with audience participation. So we have some mics set up, and uh, later on we'll open it up to questions from you all as well. The video clips referred to could not be included in this audio podcast. So as you can see, even, even when the wrestlers aren't attacking the commentators, you never know what might be coming towards your table. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, don't, I don't guess they offer JR much of uh, hazard duty pay, but we're glad to have him here uh, to discuss his time spent uh, in the wrestling world and, and the implications that may have on the greater uh, media industries that we study here in CMS and that our colloquia series always touch upon. So I want to introduce uh, Jim Ross from the World Wrestling Entertainment. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I haven't I haven't seen that uh, piece I did with Mick in the uh, you know uh, introducing mankind in uh, gosh years. I can what, but what I can tell you is that we went into a green room like environment and kind of went over the outline of where we wanted to start and a couple of destinations that we wanted to touch on and then how it was going to end. So, yes, I knew I was going to get the mandible claw at the end, and yes, I knew that I needed to come up with the appropriate uh, uh, reactions. But our journey from beginning to end was essentially extemporaneous in an ad lib. And uh, that's one of the... The, the great qualities about this business that uh, I find to be exhilarating. You know, I have broadcast NFL football. Uh, I did the XFL on NBC for that one fateful year. Uh, I've written three books and two bestsellers. Uh, and I think that the exhilaration of feeling that I get on Monday night, a live TV show, is, uh, is hard to replicate in any of those environments. Uh, the, uh, so that was an interesting situation. The other thing about the tape where Foley goes off the hell in a cell through the air, through the announce table to the concrete floor was that I didn't know it was coming, which is the way I like to work. I'm not an actor. Uh, obviously, as you can see, my acting in that uh, skit with Foley probably was, <laughs> I don't think uh, uh, any, anybody from Hollywood has beaten my door down to come be an actor, but bottom line of it was was that it worked with our audience. It resonated with our audience, and it gave Foley, the bad guy, the antagonist, the resting heel, an identity. Because he came into the WWE uh, uh, as a Cactus Jack, who was a cult hero because of his bizarre 
hardcore blood and guts presentation. So, and a lot of, uh, especially a lot of males, younger males, uh, were really into that chair slamming, and he lost part of his ear getting tied up in the ropes and his scars and all that stuff was. So we had to get another image for him. At the time that he came in to the WWE, I was uh, in charge of the talent relations department. I've never understood the word talent relations. It's like customer relations, I guess, in a sense. Uh, it's like being the player personnel director of a pro football team or a basketball team or the general manager of a baseball team. Uh, I was in charge of hiring the talent and unfortunately firing the talent and negotiating contracts, handling the discipline, uh, managing their bookings, et cetera, et cetera. So I had to convince McMahon, Vince McMahon, Mr. McMahon the character, not him, Vince McMahon the chairman of the board, that we should hire Mick Foley because I believe that the character had great uh, potential. He had never had a run in WWE, and McMahon was very, very uh, against me hiring Mick because he didn't quote-unquote have the WWE look. Uh, so as you can see, Mick was not uh, a bodybuilder. Uh, he didn't fit the classic uh, Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior. Uh, you know, he, didn't, he doesn't look like an athlete. I think Sam wrote a paper value that said he was pear-shaped. And he is yeah, Mick loved that. Actually. And he'll, he'll be here, and you'll be able to hopefully uh, enjoy his uh, presentation. He's a, real, he's a very intelligent guy. And he's, he was three characters for us. Actually, four characters. He was himself, Mick Foley, Mankind, Cactus Jack, and Dude Love. And everybody knew the same character. He just had different, multiple personalities. And, uh, so, uh, and he became a very beloved figure. And he's, he's got another book that's just been released called The Hardcore Diaries. It's pretty entertaining. So uh, those are just two experiences. But me working on Mondays, the less information I know about what's going to happen as far as all the intricacies of the match, I would be less than truthful to say I don't know the destination. But I don't need to know every stop along the way. I care not to know that we're going to go to Wally World and we're going to stop and see the world's largest ball of twine. Well, surprise me with a ball of twine. I'll be better off if I don't know that we're going to see the ball of twine. I'll give you a more natural reaction. Uh, again, not being an actor. Uh, so uh, that was the, I, I've had a lot of jobs in the, in the, in, in the wrestling business that uh, it's preferred in the WWE world to call sports entertainment. And there's a reason for that. Uh, any of you, and I talked to Sam's class last couple of days, any of you that have been wrestling fans for some of your life, all of your life, the last few years, whatever, and some of your peer group found out about it, you probably got some ridicule, some teasing, uh, you know, what do you watch that stuff for? What, you know, God, don't you know it's fake? And all. Well, first of all, re the, the real world, as Mick Foley wrote, is a lot more fake than wrestling. <laughs> and the, in the standpoint that uh, wrestling's endings are predetermined, but the journey along the way is largely not. And there are, and there are real live injuries that occur that, that are uh, very bona fide, very documented, and very real. Um, so I don't ever think that, I think wrestling is showbiz. I know that the outcomes are predetermined. But I don't think that wrestling is fake. You choose to believe it's fake, that's your prerogative. I see a lot more fake people in, in, I've met in Wall Street.
and media executives and network televisions, uh, network, network television executives, and their and their posse's, uh, like watching Entourage and the Ari the Ari character. There's a there's a world of those guys, and they're as phony as a three dollar bill. So to me, that world is a whole lot more fake than my world. Uh, are we a performance art? Absolutely. Uh, and I have the utmost respect for the performers because the great performers, when I first started in the business in 1974, the great performers would have, there'd be two guys wrestling. Let's say Chris Nowinski and I were going to wrestle tonight. And the boss would come in and say, J.R. Nowinski's going over in 20 minutes. About go past 20. Okay. He's the baby face, the hero. J.R., you're the heel, the villain. No problem. I'd say, what do you want to use? He'd say, I'll, I'll do my finish, but I've got a sore back, so please, uh, let's take it easy on my back. No problem. That was it. That's, they, they have just worked out their match for 20-something minute presentation. They go out to, out to the audience. Could be this many people. I've done TV shootings, many two-camera shoots in my day. They had less people than this in the studio audience. And they're the same people in the same chair. The same, you know, it's, it was... It was not good for the business, and we've outgrown that. But they'd go out, these guys would go out and do their performance to the live audience, and they didn't have it all memorized. It wasn't, uh, you know, whatever. It was just, it was listening to the audience. Uh, it was the same thing that stand-up comedians do. It was a, it's the same things that vaudevillians did. It's the same thing that any, uh, unless a speaker, you go to a speaker, you hear a guy speaking, and you obviously, see, I don't have a speech. I got some data here I'm going to give you here in a minute. I had no speech written. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. I have no idea. I know where the hell I'm going. We're going to go on a little journey here and get some of your questions. If I see you falling asleep or getting up and leaving and walking your ass out of here, then I assume that I have not done a very good job. <laughs> so I will try to listen to my audience. I will try to observe you. And I will try to gain eye contact so I have, you see that I am respecting your space and you being here today. So, and, and if you book early, then I failed. Or you got to go to the can or something. I don't know. Maybe you got, you know, the old bladder problem. Guys of my age have that all the time. It's no big deal. <laughs> so that's an art form of going out and have, putting on a wrestling match, telling a story. The wrestling business is running out of great storytellers. That's why you see the Ric Flairs of the world that are 58 years old still hanging on because the younger generation of wrestlers have not perfected their craft. They get in too big a hurry. They don't listen to their audience more than anything. It's not that they're not smart. They're not good athletes. They're not good-hearted. They're not, they don't have good intentions. It's instinctive. And you have to realize where your instincts lie as you move on in your life. You know, this class last couple of days, now everybody, I didn't meet anybody today that wants to be a wrestling announcer, or yesterday. There's electrical engineers and nuclear engineers and, and uh, you know, te technology things. And uh, I tell them, Sam, that a buddy of mine wrote, sent me an email, one of my Oklahoma redneck buddies. He said, how are you doing up there with those uh, MIT uh, math nerds? <laughs> what the hell are you doing there talking to those guys? Well, you know, I found out that uh, you guys are no different than any other group your age. You're obviously uh, achieving, maybe overachieving what the average would be, and you're in a very prestigious university. 
Uh, you're getting a great education. You're preparing yourself for life. But I'll promise you this, because you get a degree from MIT, I mean, it doesn't mean there's any guarantee you're going to be successful. It's going to open a door or two. But you can be a jerk. Or you cannot have confidence in your ability. You cannot have passion. You cannot have a work ethic. You don't know no human, basic human nature and be a failure. And what wrestling does and what we illustrate and what we do in sports entertainment is all the fundamentals and foundations of basic human nature. Understand it, feel it, get it, and be successful. It is essentially good versus evil. Some parts of America, some parts of the world, that line between good and evil is blurred. Some parts, it is very prominent. I was giving an illustration about John Cena, who was the voice of this promotional piece. He's the, he's the guy du jour. There was Hulk, and then there was Savage, and there was Bret, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, and Stone Cold and The Rock. And now there's John Cena. He's the it guy. And I recruited John, and I signed John. John is positioned as a fan favorite, as a hero. His name's above the title. He's expected to sell tickets and draw ratings. And in Washington, D.C., a couple, three weeks ago, for Raw at the MCI Center in our beloved nation's capital, they booed him like he was Osama bin Laden. He was booed like he was burning the flag in their nation's capital in the middle of the ring. The next week, we're back out in the Midwest, Indianapolis, and they it was like uh, the second coming. He was, it's, it's amazing the difference in the views in our own country. When we go abroad, as you saw in this thing, uh, our, our show is in over 100 countries, our TV shows. 17 languages. And, you know, obviously you've probably gathered by now because I've had two bouts of Bell's palsy, meaning my, I've had facial paralysis on once on both sides of my face. Uh, once uh, caused me to get fired which I didn't think was a real cool deal. Second time, I had to be uh, on the sideline for four months healing. Ironically enough, the night I came back to work was here in Boston at WrestleMania when uh, Stone Cold wrestled The Rock for the first time. And the towel that went to McManus said, we need JR to call our match because he'll tell our story honestly and with passion. And I uh, was, uh, so I was told with my face hanging and my eye, I had to be taped shut to sleep. And I looked, it looked horrible. It looked worse than I normally looked. Uh, just to be an old Oklahoma redneck, I uh, walked out in the Fleet Center and it sold out, and, and uh, I uh, was scared to death for the first time that I can remember being scared to go to perform in years, literally. And I walk out, they play my music, the Oklahoma theme song, Boomer Sooner, and the crowd stands, and they cheered, and they kept cheering. And I got a huge standing ovation. So, being the old softy that I am, now I start crying. And I got to get to the announce position, and they're going to do it on camera. Here's JR back. Man, I'm trying to get tears out of my eyes. I'm trying to get my composure. My face is hanging from the Bell's palsy, and I got to talk to talk and be heard or to be understood more specifically. I got to hold my face up. So, consequently, that was a very emotional moment, but that's what our business is about. It's about the passion, and we sell emotion. We sell, we, we sell human. We, Focused on human interactions. 
yes, there's a bad guy, and yes, there's a good guy. And if we tell our story well, as any storyteller should, there is a common link. It's very easily understood why wrestler A is mad at wrestler B. Uh, so that's kind of my, uh, my Bell's palsy issue. So if you see me, uh, some of my words might not be quite as uh, enunciated as perfectly as they should. Either I'm getting tired or I'm talking too fast or I've had too much to drink. <laughs> I got a great night's sleep. I haven't had a drink today yet. <laughs> and I, uh, but I may get in a little bit of a hurry because I get excited about what I'm talking about. And I love my, my business. And it's been a real, this roller coaster ride. But uh, it's been a great run in 33 years I've been in it. I saw my first wrestling show at age five. That was 50 years ago. So for you and my team math nerds, that makes me 55 years old. Bang! Just like that, I had it. I could fit in with you guys. 30 years ago, maybe. Probably not. Not couldn't couldn't qualify it here. Uh, the uh, I got into wrestling business in 1974. It was a group of territories, the United States, different uh, clusters of wrestling organizations all over the country that ran certain markets. It was like a nice mafia. In other words, you didn't go to New York and run the territory because out uh, of respect, the fact that you didn't want your wrestler's uh, legs broken or, or blackballed, your ring to be destroyed or stolen. So everybody did their thing in their own little area and stayed there. The thing that changed the wrestling business was uh, that changed it. The wrestling, the wrestling business went back up one step. At one time, was run by legitimate sports promoters. A lot of boxing, old-time boxing promoters became the wrestling promoter. Made sense. It was the same building in town. You used the same athletic commission. You had the same business contacts. Made sense. Over the years, because certain talents stood up above so many others, the talents and the classes heard this. And this is my story, and I'm sticking to it, and I can prove that if you study the business, you'll see that this is true. Wrestlers became very powerful. Star wrestlers became very powerful and leveraged themselves into owning pieces, percentages of a wrestling company. Leverage, key word. And in the law, at the end of the day, they leveraged the owner out because the wrestler had the connection with the wrestlers on the roster. The athletes and the performers were, were loyal to the guy because they were paid on a percentage of the gate based on the amount of ticket sales. And if you're the guy and you're putting an ass every 18 inches, which is the width of a seat, then you are the hero. You're the star in the locker room. You're the star in that home because you're helping these people earn more money. So I'm going to be loyal to you. So over time, wrestlers became owners of territories. And they were largely alpha male schoolyard bullies who are great athletes who impose their will mentally and physically on their peer group, on their employees. And as time went on, they had their little territories. They were in the television syndication business and didn't know it. They had a territory, meaning they ran the same towns on the same night of the week every week for 50 or 52 weeks a year, whatever it would work out to be. 
So they had a loop. They had a territory. The wrestlers had a route, like a sales territory. Being New York on this day, Boston here, Philly here, boom, same thing. D.C. When I, where I was, we ran Tulsa on Monday, Little Rock on Tuesday, Fort Smith on Wednesday, Wichita Falls on fr- Thursday, Oklahoma City on Friday, Joplin, Missouri on Saturday, and because we're in the Bible Belt, we were home on Sunday. <laughs> but when the wrestler owned the territory, the hell with the Sundays, we're working, because that's another day I can make more money. And we started running on Sundays. Seven days a week. My early days in the wrestling business in the early 70s, I was uh, the owner of the territory, a former ex-wrestler. Got a pattern here. Had lost an eye when he was nine years old. He became a big star in the early 50s. He lost another, his other eye. He was totally blind. So I became an office gopher. I graduated in college. I met these guys when our fraternity was putting on a, some matches for a fundraiser. I made some contacts got a job. I was an outsider getting in. I wasn't Italian, I wasn't a made man, but I got in the mafia. You know, I felt like maybe Meyer Lansky at one of the old mafia meetings. And I'm not Jewish either. (laughs) So I'm an outsider in the business. I'm a gopher. I made $125 a week, period. That's no taxes withheld, no 401k, no benefits, no expenses paid, $125 a week. Which probably proves what some of you may be thinking, I'm not as smart as I look. Or maybe I am. <laughs> Nonetheless, I became this guy's driver. He drank a half a pint of whiskey every day. I bought his whiskey. He smoked El Producto cig- uh, presidential cigars, which are stinkeroos. He, I bought those for him every day. He wore those J. Mars Sansa Belt slacks. And he, was, and he would get belligerently drunk and angry. And he would start thinking about his blindness, and he would, be, he would lash out. It was a really interesting situation. But I learned a great deal from his listening to him. Listening when he's sober and lucid, he was amazingly, amazingly bright about the wrestling business, which all he did was explain to me, you have a hero and you have a villain, and they have to have a common denominator that, that is easily understood by all demographics, all ethnic groups, all socioeconomic groups have got to be able to relate to it. I remember driving him to Shreveport from Tulsa, 300 miles, because he heard that his daughter was dating a wrestler. And that was a kiss of death. So he started drinking early that morning. and time I picked him up, he was already loaded. <laughs> what, made the, what made the trip more interesting, he had a, one of those, like Clint Eastwood... Uh, Dirty hairy sized guns with him. So as the trip progressed, that six-hour drive, 300 miles, I got the whole story. I realized I was about to become an accessory to murder. <laughs> because we were driving from Tulsa to Shreveport to kill the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, with my boss's gun. Because <laughs> Ted DiBiase was... It was, had become intimate with the boss's daughter. <laughs> Ironically, she married two uh, wrestlers, two failed marriages, both the wrestlers, so maybe he was right all along. Nonetheless, uh, uh, as we got closer to Shreveport, I kept envisioning myself making someone very happy in a prison as a 20-year-old. <laughs> I didn't know what uh, we were going to do. How was I going to talk my way out of this? Well, Your Honor, uh, you know, he had that gun, and... And the killer was, he had those, those J. Mar pants, and 
and he would carry. He put the gun in his lap with the bull, with the with the uh, the barrel. Thank you, somebody. Thanks, Chris. Barrel, pointing at me. <laughs> so he'd have a big can, like a Folgers coffee can. He'd dip his cigar ashes in. He's got all this slack in his pants because he wanted his pants to be loose. He got all this slack. So he's smoking a cigar. The ashes get longer and longer and longer. Finally, they fall off to the slack of his double knits, of which they burn through. What they hit after they burn through, I don't need to know, don't want to know. <laughs> but I can tell you that it hit something very sensitive because he started screaming and flailing his arms and there goes the gun, which lands up on the dash. And now we pull over, and we got to get the fire out. And, and I suggest you take a nap. And I got the gun and put it in the back seat, and it was just a real, really weird. That was the 70s. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. That was the 70s. There were no drug testing. There were no athletic commissions down there. Uh, I would stick, I would you know, when I started refereeing, I was making 25 to $40 a night, and we knew all the buffets. You would wait to eat till like 2 o'clock so you could have one big meal, real healthy, and eat a lot until they say, you know, you must go. <laughs> we would, I would, I would, we would get a room, largely $8, $10 a night, and the way I made it was, if you figure this, think about this, I'm making 25 to $40 a night refereeing these matches. I'm the only referee on the card. I got the hell beat out of me every night. Okay, I'm going to drop down. I'm going to give you a little tackle. And they loved to punish me. I was young. I wasn't one of them. I was a, I was a, a college kid, a nerdy kid who was a big wrestling fan. And I got the hell beat out of me lot, almost every night. But the way I made it was I had the wrestlers would ride with me. And they paid me. That was, the tradition was they'd pay you two cents a mile. So if you go 300 miles... Six bucks times three, eighteen dollars. Eighteen dollars when you're only making twenty-five to forty is a hell of a lot of money. Considering I could fill my car up for five or six bucks at that time, considering that the hotel was eight or ten dollars. So the some of the guys had pity for me. They saw that I loved the business. I had passion for the business. I wanted to be in the business. So I could I would do as they call you can heal in a room with us, meaning that. You can stay with us and not pay for it, and we'll not tell the hotel. So the wrestlers would share a room, two beds. They'd pull both bedspreads off their double bed, throw them into me. There you go, kid. I sleep on the floor. Take a pillow off the couch or a chair or a, a cushion and use that for a pillow, and I'd just sleep there. And they would cost me nothing. But I had my 18 bucks from the uh, trance, transportation cost, and my referee money. So that was how I got my start. I wanted to be a broadcaster. That was, the story's real simple. A guy didn't show up. The boss said, do you think you could do this, kid? And I was so tired of getting the, the shit beat out of me and not making any money. I said, absolutely, I could talk. you damn right. That means you have it. Because I'd done, uh, I worked my way through college working for college radio, and I'd done my voice for my college football team. And I knew I could do it. And I did it, and it worked, and I've done it ever since. So it's, it did work. Maybe out of necessity, out of fear, my one opportunity. I went to work, uh, uh, and I worked to work for Ted Turner in the mid-'80s, late-'80s. 
Um, I was vice president of broadcasting for Turner. Um, I did the uh, Saturday night TBS show for years and the, their primetime specials, their very first pay-per-views. I was on the first pay-per-views in wrestling. Not the, but in the same era, same time. I wasn't at the WWE at that time. Uh, I did, uh, like I said, I did Atlanta Falcon football. I had a talk show and radio at the same time. I was uh, doing uh, wrestling at WCW at uh, Turner. I left there, 93, came to WWE, WWF then. My first gig was WrestleMania 9. Uh, a week from this Sunday, we're doing WrestleMania 23. Um, so I did WrestleMania 9, my first uh, shot live uh, in a toga at, Russell, at Caesars <laughs> Palace. Bobby Heenan tried to get me to go commando. <laughs> I was too smart for him because I knew he was going to do something. So I, he said, all right, we all go commando. Savage commando, right, Savage? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm wearing my Hanes. You guys do whatever you want to do. So I, we did that show. and I worked there. Uh, uh, that was in uh, April 93. Uh, Super Bowl Sunday. January 94, I had my first bout of Bell's palsy. Two weeks later, I'm calling him Mr. McMahon's office, and he said, I'm going a different direction. You're not in my plans. Thanks for all your efforts. That was the extent of it. And I had, the contract was up like the end of April, May, so they were nice to pay me the rest of the contract after some gentle nudging that I deserved to honor my contract as far as getting paid. Then I got, then uh, he got indicted. <laughs> Well, you know, the federal government, nobody ever said that our government sometimes is the smartest thing in the world. Uh, they wasted millions of dollars of maybe your parents' money or your money or some of you here, my money, tax money in general, for a witch hunt. I mean, he was this big, you know, it's like, it's like the, the, the feds finally being smart enough to, to put, send Al Capone to Alcatraz over uh, goddamn tax evasion. But they can't find that he murdered Hundreds of people. Can't prove any of that, but he's a tax evader, so by God, you're going to prison. And uh, that's, so McMahon got the steroid distribution thing. It was a witch hunt. It didn't, so he gets, he gets exonerated. But in the meantime, they need me back. I go back and sit in for him, and he, the trial's over. And, you know, at the time they hired me, they didn't know if he was going to be convicted. and He may go, go away. So I had another little short run. Then I'm brought back that later that year to uh, work as a, an assistant in the talent relations department, but not be on television because I have Bell's palsy, I have a southern accent, and I'm not a pretty little guy like Bob Costas, and you're not going to be on television. Cool. I made, I made a nice living, and I, I love the business, and... And in the back of my head, I said, there's no way they're going to keep me on TV because they can't find anybody better than I am because I'm not going to let anybody be better than me. Maybe it's egocentric. Maybe I'm a pompous ass. Maybe, maybe, or maybe I am. But that's how I felt. And that's how I felt I had to, to pre present myself to survive. You have to have some defense mechanisms. I was, I'm going to be the baddest cat in the land as far as doing this announcing, baby. So uh, I did that, and of course I get back on television, and then Mr. McMahon becomes a character, and 
And I got on doing Raw, and now we just did our 721st episode of Raw. Uh, and Jerry Lawler and I have done that together forever. It's like Abbott and Costello. It's, you know, it's peanut butter and jelly. We don't even rehearse. We never go, hey, you say this, and I'll say that, and they'll laugh, and I'll say, will you stop? And then, you, no. <laughs> we just go do it. We just go do it because we both feel it, and it's, we know the direction we're going. And he, know, he wants to know even less than I want to know. If I know the destination, he just doesn't even know that. He sits there, doodles, does his thing. He's a great artist. Then we come back and break, he's right back. It's like a switch. He's, he's, a, he's much more talented than I. So then, uh, and all that works good, and I'm the, senior, I'm the senior vice president of talent relations. I hire a lot of wrestlers that were very good because I believe in interviewing people and, and hiring people with passion. I don't care about bodybuilders, contrary to my beloved chairman. That's his prerogative. I'm not saying he's wrong. I care more about passion, athleticism, and uh, things of that nature, those intangibles than I do about the size of your biceps or your size of your thighs or whatever, what, what bodybuilder stuff. And uh, I hired a lot of good guys. I hired Stone Cold. I hired Mick Foley. I hired Rock. I hired the Undertaker at WCW. They came here with my blessing. God said, get the hell out of here. We're not going to do anything with you. We should, but I didn't have a stroke there. Go. A lot of guys. Uh, so I, I had an eye for the talent. Because I, I would talk to them, and they would, I could feel them. I could relate to them. And I had to fight hard to get all those guys hired. Foley, McMahon didn't want because of his look. Stone Cold, he took okay because Austin would never draw any money, but he was a great tactician and could wrestle in the mid-card and make other guys look good that we were building. But Stone Cold himself would never draw any money. And, and in, in defense of, of uh, the company, he wasn't Stone Cold then. He was Steve Austin. He became Stone Cold and became a phenomenon. He had one year where he earned over $13 million. Man, I, I don't know how, many, how much money you uh, electrical engineers are going to earn in your lifetime. <laughs> Yeah, $13 million a year doing wrestling. And my, I hired The Rock, and I hired The Rock, paid The Rock $150,000 for his first contract. Because I went to Florida and watched him work out, and I, I saw a star. I saw a half African-American, half Samoan, six feet four, 265-pound guy with beautiful teeth and great eyes, and, a, and his grandfather was a wrestler, and his father was a wrestler, and he had great genetics and passion and intelligence. He was articulate. And I gave him a buck fifty to start, unheard of. I told McMahon he thought I'd lost my mind. I think he probably was, well, maybe you need to be drug tested. <laughs> <laughs> the Rock has done well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he has uh, moved on. And I'm proud of him. And we still communicate. He's a, he's a great guy. He's not forgotten. I gave The Rock the... I used to, when I did Falcon football, I'd interview Deion Sanders every week. So Deion played the Falcons, number 21, prime time. So I would... He was a big wrestling fan. And I was doing wrestling for TBS at the time. And I'd go up to him and I'd say, Hey, Deion, uh, you think you can talk to prime time about him being on my, uh, my pregame show this Sunday? 
Hey, he said, JR, I'll talk to prime time for you. He said, uh, what time are you want to do that Thursday? That's after practice. All right. I said, give me a minute. So I'd go do another interview or something. I'd come back. Dion is prime time. I said, Dion, did you talk to prime time yet? Yeah, I did. I just got, just got through talking to him. You're on for Thursday. So I told Rock this story. He said, and I said, I think it would work for you. Talk it in the third person. Therefore, it's where it was born. Well, the Rock says, he's going to lay a smack down on your candy asses type thing. And it worked. And he got noticed by Hollywood, and now he's, he's doing really well for his family, and I'm proud of him. I'm happy for him. So that, took it, that takes us hiring these guys, doing these things. company goes public. McMahon makes lots more money. He sells 15% of his company on an IPO. He makes $160 million. Uh, that's what they, they get off their IPO, initial stock offering, where the hell it is. I got a little bit of it. Don't hurt my feelings. Uh, and he got real rich, richer. We were a public company. Everything is cool. We were on Spike TV, lousy network. <laughs> Nobody watched Spike. It was the national network, then it was Spike. <laughs> and then now we're uh, going to USA, back to USA. We've been on there at USA 17 years. And uh, two weeks we're going to go in USA, we're in Waco, Texas. And I live in Norman, Oklahoma, straight down 35 south of Waco from my house. Four or five hour drive, depending on if you're mad or like I, I was coming back home. Because I got told at four at uh, five, uh, four o'clock, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, that tonight is your last night. We're taking you off the air tonight or after tonight because when we go on next week, we we debut on the USA Network. We want a new. We're going to have a new guy taking your place. And the irony of this deal is I've been replaced twice, you know. So what the hell? I didn't like I, you know, I've been, I was a fairly resilient guy. I walk in, the executive producer, who's a friend of mine, he's an OU football fan, this, hence this. I love OU football, obviously. He brings his, he's, we're friends. He's looking at his shoes, and his shoes aren't extraordinary. <laughs> I walk in and say, oh, I guess I'm getting replaced again. And McMahon looks at me, and his veins are big. I'm like, what, the, what have I done? You know, have I caught my hand in the tail or some stock embezzlement elaborate deal? You know, I didn't date his daughter. <laughs> the Leroy McGurk syndrome. That's the old blind guy that's had the pack in the heat and killed the million-dollar man. Long before he was a million-dollar man, by the way. And uh, they said, well, yes, we are going to replace you. Tonight's your last show. I said, I don't, wouldn't expect any less of you. So, okay. I said, uh, can I say goodbye to the viewers? No. Okay. So I'll go out and do a live show, not expected to be down or downtrodden. And I think, again, this class has heard this, and they're probably going to say, Jesus, word us out. I'm a big Sopranos fan. I love it when Tony tells Carmella, poor you. And I thought, I'm not going to walk out and say, poor me. To hell with that. Poor me. I'm healthy. I thought it was. I've, I've saved my money. I've had great success financially. I've got great stock options. I've written books. I've done all these things. What the hell? I've had a great run. So no poor you for me. 
I go out and do the show. I, of course, I get on my, back in my truck, and I'm driving toward Oklahoma. I get on a cell phone. I vent like hell to my wife. So I was hurt, and my, I was pissed. And uh, so they said, well, we're going to get this new guy. We're going to hire this new guy. And they offered him half a million dollars to take my place for working one day a week. As the story goes. And uh, on a like, Thursday or Friday, I'm getting ready to you know, go to the OU football game. I'm sitting outside the backyard bar pool. I told the class, I have this philosophy that my fat looks better brown than white. So I, <laughs> I'm sitting out by the pool, and I'm getting a little tan, and I'm listening to the radio, and I'm, I might have had a beer, two, whatever. Phone rings. It's my friend, the executive producer of WWE. How you feeling? Feeling good. How you doing? I'm all right. I said, uh, hey, uh, can you be in Dallas Monday? <laughs> What's up? What's up? What do you, he said, well, we want you to, we want you to work the uh, show, three-hour special, the debut back on USA Network. I thought I got canned. Well, I don't have my deal done with the new guy yet. Ah. Sure, I'll be there. I drove down. Extra motivation, extra whopper on my cheese. And I gave him a little <laughs> extra juice that night. And uh, I, uh, uh, we hit him out of the park. It was a good show. But McMahon was then so angry that I came back with a vengeance. And the other wrestlers that were top guys said, don't let JR go. Because I embellished their stories. I made the badasses really bad. And the good guys really good and had redeeming qualities. And I wasn't an actor. And I wasn't a you know, con man. And I wasn't shilling. And I, I was a fan. Common guy. Like Tommy Boy, the part that Dan Aykroyd plays. I make car parts for the working man because that's what I am. I'm a wrestling fan because that's what I am. We're, that's a part of Americana. It's part of our fabric. I'm cool with that. So they make a choice. They're going to take me off the air, and I have to have a little surgery, and I got a tumor in my colon, and I got a size of an orange, and they thought I had cancer, and then, thank God it was malignant. And 13 inches of my intestines were removed. I'd show you my scarves as us guys, but uh, I won't do that. The girls are here. <laughs> So uh, I get home in the hospital. They are replaced now again. I'm gone. I did the debut out. I go to the doctor, and I say, hey, they said, you're in pretty bad shape. We're going to do surgery. So I have major surgery. I get home on Monday, the day that Monday Night Raw airs. was my show. They have my replacement on. Nice kid, Joey Styles, from ECW. Good boy. Good kid. Nothing wrong with him. Uh, they call me, and I've been like three or four hours off a of morphine drip. I got some really good drugs. <laughs> I was feeling nothing. McMahon calls me on the Monday, and he says, Hey, hope you watch the show tonight. You're going to like this. We're going we're gonna to do this old piece of business with you. You're going to enjoy it. You know, and I felt like I felt like it was a scene out of an old Cheech and Chong movie. Yeah, man. <laughs> so that was a night that they took a one minute should have been a one minute bit or two minute bit or never happened. 
and made it nine or 12 or 13 minutes of having a, a Hollywood mannequin made of my head, my face, and this big ass, which I have, and they were pulling things out of the ass. Barbecue sauce, a football, an OU football helmet, uh, you know, whatever else, I don't know, maybe a cookbook, hand. There you go, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I got out of therapy last week, I'm all right. Oh, just kidding. Uh, so I watched this deal, and that's their, that was my, my send-off. And the payoff of it was, after nine or 12 painful, grueling minutes was, J.R., pull your head out of your ass. I still don't know, understand what, he, what that message was supposed to be. I really truly don't. But I endured it. Everything was cool. I got my job. I got my contract. I'm doing some work for talent relations. I'm consulting. Uh, I'm a senior advisor. That's what the business card says. So then they go to do the first Saturday Night's Man event, and my phone rings again. Hey, JR, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? <laughs> Would you like to do the Saturday Night's Man event? And what role? I ain't coming to get done to pull out of my ass. <laughs> I ain't going to get beat up. I've already been beat up. I've been bloodied and beat up and battered and fried. Ain't going to happen. And not this stage of the game. I said, I've been, this surgery is kind of a serious deal, and I'm, still healing, and I'm 50-something years old, and let's ixnay beating up A. <laughs> no, I want you to come to the play-by-play because it's a multi-branded show, and you're neutral, which really stuck me right here. I'm not the raw guy. I'm not a WWE guy. I'm not a wrestling guy. I'm just neutral. I'm Geneva. <laughs> so I go do the Saturday Night's Main event because... It was on NBC, and I wanted the exposure. And I wanted to show them all, you made a mistake. So I go to there, and I spent two days with Stone Cold, and we drank a lot of beer, and we had a lot of fun. And, uh, and we, uh, I did the show, and leave, and say goodbye, goodbye to everybody. About two weeks later, my phone rings again. Hey, uh, you want to come to WrestleMania? This last year, this time. For what? Well, to work. You gotta give me more than that, you know. I just want to work doing because I've been, I've done some unique jobs here. I went from being on the ring crew as a young man to refereeing, you know. I've been an executive VP, I've been a senior VP, I've been a corporate officer, I've been a punching bag, I've had things pulled out of my ass. So let's <laughs> kind of clarify what we're gonna do here. We want you to come back and do all the raw matches. I said, well, it's all well and good for me. What does that do for Joey Styles? You just emasculated him. He's been gilded. Well, that's what Vince wants. He wants you to do the show. I'm, I said, I'm not going to turn down the assignment, but you need, we need to think about that. Styles got to do a match, a hardcore rules match, with Edge and Mick Foley, by the way, which was good. He got a cup of coffee at WrestleMania. It's better than no cup, cup of coffee at all. Tell him, prompt, take my word on it. Then soon thereafter, uh, I replaced Joey and went back to my role in Raw. That's my little journey for the as it worked out. And I have no regrets. And people say, are you angry at McMahon? No. He always made the decision he believed to be right for the business. Whether I agreed with it or not, and I'll assure you that some of you young people are going to work for fo folks that are going to make some decisions that will break your heart or make your guts get in knots. But that person, that man or woman, is making the decision, hopefully, for the good of their business or their position. 
And sometimes it just doesn't go down right. Sometimes we get a real bad hand dealt to us. And you have the choice to say, well, I'm going to lay down and roll up in, in a fetal position, or I'm going to move on and find another place to go, hang my hat, so to speak. So uh, the, the business has changed. Cable television changed the wrestling business forever. The days of the little local TV shows, you're doing your one-hour show, wherever you lived, if you lived in Atlanta, you saw the Atlanta show, and, the Mary, and it would also air in Columbus, Georgia, in Savannah, Georgia. It also aired in Chattanooga, maybe, or wherever. If you lived in New York or the New England, you saw Bruno, and they, you know, that show was in a garden, and they were taped in Hershey, PA, or wherever, Poughkeepsie, or wherever it was. If you were in Oklahoma, you saw the show taped in Tulsa, that aired in Little Rock, and all those towns I mentioned. There are 20 or 30 of those places. When cable TV, McMahon had the vision that cable TV was the big blanket, the big overlay. And that made national stars. And that made everybody in your area want to see who they perceive, perception, become their area. That, perception being those guys on cable were the stars. So the territories died. Everybody blames Vince McMahon for killing the wrestling territories. I totally disagree with that. And this is from a guy that's been put on a sideline three times by the boss. And I, again, wish him, uh, he's, been, he's also been very good to me in a lot of other ways. And I think, again, I, th I really truly believe that he meant well. He, meant, he wanted to do what was right for his company in my behalf, in my role. Uh, I didn't agree with it, but, you know, hey, it's just football. So I play or sit down. Uh, the wrestling promoters, again, going back to that, what I said earlier, the wrestlers, the powerful wrestlers became promoters. They knew how to put on a wrestling match or how to lock up or have a headlock, do all these things. They didn't know anything about syndication. They were in the syndication business. They didn't know anything about marketing. They had a marketing company. They were selling tickets to live events. They didn't understand those issues. They let themselves be vulnerable. Most of them didn't even have contracts for their own TV stations. They sure as hell didn't have contracts for the wrestlers. None. No employment agreements. So they were not prepared for business and success. And McMahon saw the vulnerability of that. He had his USA overlay. It competed against TBS's wrestling show. And here comes the WWE to expand to the United States, to every territory. Now we are in, as we, the piece here bragged about, 120 countries, whatever it was, 17 languages. Uh, in April, we do a Raw from Milan, Italy. The next week is a Raw from London. International scope is amazing. The international growth is amazing. I got some uh, fun facts here. The business strategy of WWE is really simple. Live and televised entertainment, consumer products, digital media, and WWE films. This is from the smoky, bad guy wears black wool tights, good guy wears white wool tights, hairy, fat, ball-shaped, different kind of guys wrestling each other. This is a go from the territory days where you had your milk route to a global business. Total revenues in 2006 for $415 million. Live and televised entertainment accounted for 70% of the revenue. Consumer products, 23%. Digital media, this is the big one, 7%. Guess where that's going? Up big time. There's so much new money in digital media in our, in our area, it's, it's sad. 
Uh, it's not really sad. I hope I live long enough to, to take advantage of it. We reached more than 15 million viewers uh, during an average week. Nice show on Monday nights. It's the most watched Monday night show on cable TV, all of cable television. Uh, Pay-per-views over the last five years, the number has increased from 12 to 16 a year. Uh, total pay-per-view buys. Our biggest, we make a lot of money on pay-per-view. If pay-per-view goes away, we're in big trouble. But it's not. Revenues to WWE are about 100 million a year off our end, our, p our piece of the pay-per-view business. Cable, the cable systems get their half, and I think we get our half, or whatever the split is. Uh, we get 39.95. So for WrestleMania, probably what 49.95 or something. 50, I don't know what it is. I don't. I don't buy it. Well, I will buy it, but I'll be there. I think. <laughs> I never know. <laughs> uh, I really believe the WWE helped create the pay-per-view industry. I really do. The USCs and the boxing events and all those things that are, that are do that do well on pay-per-view. I really think the WWE was kind of the forerunner of pay-per-view and got people uh, conditioned to buy it. I do believe that. We had 346 live events in 2006, 61 international events. We, had, we sold over 2 million tickets at an average ticket price of $41.69. It's not cheap to go to wrestling or sports entertainment. <laughs> Venue merchandise, T-shirts, foam fingers, caps, whatever. We... Uh, our, our fans spend an average of $11.49 per head on that. That's a high per cap. They, our fans are passionate, and they want to display their colors. They're defiant. They don't care if their buddies tease them about being a wrestling fan. They'll wear their shirt. They'll wear their cap. They'll wear the Rock Says. They'll wear Austin 316, whatever it may be. I respect that, and I think that's cool. Newest thing right now, WWE 24-7. It was my idea when I was, uh, when I was uh, somebody, an executive officer, to buy up all these wrestling tapes, these libraries. We have 90,000 hours of wrestling tapes. 90,000. Most wrestling shows aired one time. They were put on the shelf. No, no reruns. So they aired once. It ain't like it's wore out. It's not like those John Wayne movies I watch over and over again. I start reciting the language and the dialogue. So uh, I think that the 24-7 video on demand is going to be a huge deal for the company. Uh, utilizing that library, uh, I think it's 695. How many, many subscribers do they say had, Sam? 35,000. 35,000. It's a baby business. It's like the me digital media. It's just growing. You know, uh, buddies of mine, again, I use my redneck pals, who looked at, hey, you're gay if you use a computer. <laughs> and now they're they got the little blackberries and trios and the wireless <laughs> things man they, I thought you told me it was gay to use a computer <laughs> what's that so anyway a lot of my dumb ass friends are now using computers I gotta believe more people are going to be doing the same thing as time goes on so the internet's going to be a big deal and what and I mean it's some of the numbers we'll talk about here are, are, are freaky. Consumer products have been a big thing for us. Our growth there has uh, increased uh, uh, immensely. Consumer products did $86 million last year for WWE. 
consumer products for a wrestling company. What's that mean? The 90,000 hour library, as Monsoon would say, I'm going to break my arm patting myself on the back, uh, was my idea. And I'm proud to say that the, the, the library has driven DVD sales to amazing numbers. Uh, we shipped 4 million units last year in DVDs, 30 new titles. You think we could have created 30 new titles without the, without the content? If you've got to go out and start on a blank page, any of you guys are writing, you're producing, you're directing, you're doing creative, you're writing books, you're writing novels, you're writing anything, the hardest thing to do is start with a blank page. So we got a library. Hell, we went out and bought the NFL films. We went out and did the, the, the Sable family. NFL films. You know, how many times can you see Lawrence Taylor break Joe Theismann's leg? <laughs> well, I've seen it a thousand times in different angles. It's the same tape. So we, we came up with that. that that's a really a good thing for us. And that's going to be, that's gonna be uh, I think, a big deal for the WWE as time goes on. Uh, the give an example, WrestleMania 22, so 425,000 units. That's our best-selling DVD of all time. The talent make a royalty off that, which is the wrestlers get paid extra. In the old days, they'd have got bumpkiss, nothing. We have great retail deals with Walmart, Kmart, Toys R Us, Target, among others. Good companies, big companies, doing business, selling our products. We're partnered with Simon & Schuster on books. Uh, we've had 20 books published. Uh, half of them have appeared on the New York Times bestseller list. Three have been number one. I've had three on the bestseller list. And I think Stone Cold's book was number one for about that long. So I can say I'm a bestselling author. Our magazine has 250,000 subscribers. goes out every month. More multimedia. More diversity, more ways, more platforms. We have music that we sell, uh, uh, CDs. John Cena's CD was a gold uh, CD. And it, I, mean, I don't know what it did for his career, but the white rapper thing, I don't think quite worked for him. <laughs> Digital media. WW.com attracted an average of 15.7 million unique visitors worldwide per month who viewed more than 46 million video streams per month. Now think of when technology starts catching up with everybody and our needs. Think how those numbers are going to domino. They're going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, we just signed a new deal with AT&T, the mobile services, the wireless updates. You can see the watch matches on your telephone. That's a cool deal. WWE Films is a uh, is we've had we've had three produced three movies, See No Evil with Kane, uh, cost five million dollars to produce. It has grossed uh, I think I read here uh, fifteen million dollars at the box office, and about uh, fifteen or eighteen at DVD sales. Cost five million to produce. Do the math. John Cena's movie grossed $18 million at the box office. So far, it's sold $22 million in DVD sales. It costs $8 million to produce. We take wrestlers and put them in a, in a role that fits their character. Kane is a dark character on television, played a dark character in See No Evil. It was consistent. John Cena is the hero on 
Monday Night Raw and became was a hero in the Marine. Consistency. They didn't play, it wasn't a wrestling movie. There was no wrestling in these movies. Stone Cold's movie called The Condemned is a, a great premise that will premiere April 27th. But we're also we're going to do a sneak premiere at the Friday before WrestleMania in Detroit. It's a great concept. An evil promoter, parentheses, Mr. McMahon, <laughs> goes to these prisons around the globe and selects, handpicks 10 of the most hardened, convicted to die criminals, male and female, in the world, makes deals with the prisoner, the prison system, payola, old time wrestling promoter, and they bring these guys to an island where all these little cameras are, little lift set cameras and camera crews and cameras in trees and everywhere. It's, it's camera ready, and they dump them out on the island, and they got elect, uh, plastic explosives on their ankle, so if you try to run, they blow you up. The last man standing wins, and you can kill somebody if you pull the little pin out of their, of their if you choose to that way, uh, pull the pin out of their uh, plastic explosive, and, you, and, they, and they, it, implo it explodes in 10 seconds. Sounds simple. It's got modern technology. How do, they, how do people get it to see the show? On the Internet. Well, how do they get it? Pay-per-view. So the movie, it's, it's art imitating life. It's stone cold on pay-per-view. And so you go on the Internet, and you, buy, you subscribe to it, and you watch it. It's a cool, it's a really neat movie. I saw the movie. I'm really proud for Steve, and he does a great job in it, and I... Uh, I really hope you guys will check it out at some point. Uh, we're really proud of him for that, that situation. Uh, so I think uh, I don't have any other propaganda here that W.com gets 500 million page turns a month. WWE.com was the number two most searched item on Yahoo for 2006 over such distinguished human beings as Lindsay Lohan, <laughs> Jessica Simpson, Brad, and Angelina, and uh, American Idol. And this is something that may surprise you. Raw is the number two regularly scheduled entertainment program in cable and primetime television among females. 12 to 17, 12 to 34, and number three in females, 18 to 34 and 18 to 49. It's not just a guy's thing. And maybe that's because the episodic nature of it. It's easy to understand. It's a little soap opera. It's some nice-looking guys. They're muscular, blah, blah, blah. Don't know. Maybe, it's their, maybe they're gay women. They're like the divas. I don't know. Don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So the business has really changed since I got started in it. And it's, I'm, I'm, I have not regretted one thing that's happened to me since I started my journey. I've had some ups and downs. Some of you younger people are going to experience the same thing, only in your own world. Some, you know, chicken one day, feathers the next. You got a chance to either be happy or be sad. I chose a long time ago not to be bitter and, and you know, woe is me, poor me, poor you about nothing. Because it's been a great run. So, uh, Sam, I know has got some questions. Uh, anybody's got any questions? I don't know if you need to use these mics and we're just here. Unless you... I want to step up and talk to the mic. <laughs> JR, earlier you mentioned that Raw was among one of the most popular shows for female audiences in the, the young adult female demographic. 
I know also that wrestling is one of the most popular English language programs in Hispanic households in the U.S. Here in CMS, we talk often about surplus audiences for entertainment. And you would assume that since the English-speaking young adult male is the target demographic for wrestling, that you write your storylines primarily for that audience, yet you have a sizable audience in these other demographics as well. I was wondering how that played into the storytelling process for the WWE. Well, I think as long as we don't deviate from the fundamentals that just make good storytelling, uh, storytelling is viable if you're writing a theme or you're writing a book, you're writing a speech or you're doing a presentation or whatever the heck you're doing. I mean, uh, the goal is to make sure you're, you know, you get the people in the right roles and that you're telling a good story, compelling broadcasting. And sometimes we miss. You know, some weeks are not good. Uh, some weeks are better than others. Some weeks are great. Some weeks are, you know. But I think the, the key issue is I don't know that we've ever sat down and say, let's do this storyline because it will really, really appeal to our Hispanic audience. We do pay attention to our, the ethnicities of our talent. And we assume that a Rey Mysterio will appeal to a Latino audience because no different than uh, uh, Julio Cesar Chavez does to a uh, Hispanic audience in the boxing world or uh, Oscar De La Hoya, same deal, same, same theory. I don't think we've ever thought about, well, how, let's do this, what's going to appeal to the females. I think in general, the general properties of an episodically produced television show you know, we're Dallas and Dynasty back in the day with headlocks and body slams. We've got characters, and they got a, it's a soap opera. It's, a, it's produced episodically. And the better you can, it's like writing, and again, go back and writing, if you're writing a novel, those chapters better connect somehow. You better get me hooked early, or I ain't buying it. I may, if I read the forward or the, the back, jacket cover, I may not buy this book. I gotta, you got to bring me forward. So I don't know that the, I think our talent base, we used to do very well in African-American Arbitrons and Nielsens back in the day. Still do. And, you know, every territory would have a token black person. So I'm not saying that in a braggadocious way. I never, you know, the territory I worked in had the first black hero as number one star in Junkyard Dog. All other territories, because they're owned by Caucasian male, alpha male, overbearing guys put blacks in their place. And they were Bobo Brazil. They were in the semi-main. They were Rocky Johnson, the Rock's dad, in the semi-main, or part of a tag team champions. They were not the leading man. In the Mid-South, where Bill Watts worked, ran the territory, Ernie Ladd, who just died, the big cat Ernie Ladd was our booker, was a black man. But we saw money in Junkyard Dog. He had charisma and look and whole, everything. Couldn't wrestle. <laughs> but he, he, could, he could talk. He could perform. He had timing. He understood the audience. And people loved him and believed in his character. J.R., most um, primetime television shows have had an issue in the past year where if their storylines are very serialized at all, they have to find a way to help out audiences who might have missed an episode. WWE's in a unique position where it sh has sh its shows running 51 weeks out of the year, one week off for Christmas for a year in review. But I feel that the website, WWE.com, has played a 
very important role in catching viewers up if you happen to have missed a show. Um, also, the WWE Mobile has become a device that people can watch clips from the various shows. So if you miss Raw or SmackDown or ECW, you can go to one of those other forums to get your information about what happened to see clips of matches, etc. I've also increasingly seen that the website, the mobile site, the magazine, all the different platforms that WWE has have become forums for storytelling as well so that you don't get the full story just from watching the television show, but you also have to go to the website, go to the mobile, or all these other places to get other pieces of the puzzle. I was just wondering how you feel that that changes uh, the way you tell the story and also how important you feel that that review part of the website plays into how fans can follow WWE storylines. I think the thing about if you miss Raw and you don't have a DVR or TiVo, uh, you can log on to www.com and go to the Raw page and find out what happened last night. That's, that's, that is, uh, it's not brand new, but certainly from the time I started in the, in the mid-70s, it's revolutionary. Because we know that the USA Today, or the paper, local paper, are only going to cover us if there is a death or a steroid tragedy or, 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 or steroid issue or a human growth uh, controversy or something, uh, you know, uh, something negative. That's just the bias of the media. And it, it comes right back to your, some of your buddies that are, uh, give you the grief about why you watch wrestling. You know, it's, uh, so I, I think that the, the Internet... WW.com and the internet, also in a bigger picture, uh, is an interesting tool for the wrestling fans to utilize. A lot of the stuff that you read on some of the websites is fiction, it's supposition, it's hearsay. And, uh, and there are some things you read that are true, but they don't, they don't have access, they don't, aren't on site, so they go by secondhand information. At least www.com sometimes will beat them to the punch because at least we can put our spin on it. And I asked Sam today what it said about the uh, steroid thing that was in sportsillustrated.com this week. Sports Illustrated, they're going to write about WrestleMania. In fact, we're going to have over 70,000 fans at the Ford Field. That's going to probably do a million pay-per-view buys in this world. That it's going to have fans from 50 states, 9 Canadian provinces, and 23 foreign countries converging on Detroit. Are you kidding me? They don't want, that's good news. They don't want you to know that. Now, if our guys get in a fight, or if there's a drunken arrest or a brawl at a bar in Detroit, that'll make the headlines. That's a wrestling bias. And I may sound bitter about that, but I've experienced it time and time again. And it's like, I, if I get so somebody asking, you think they should have stopped that, that show when Owen Hart died? You know what? I didn't think about it at the moment. I'm sure as hell sorry. I'm not sensitive as you are that I thought, I didn't think about that, that that very moment, should we stop this show? I'm 20 feet away from a friend of mine dying, falling from the rafters and dying before my very eyes. And, you know, I didn't think about continuing the broadcast or not because that wasn't my call. And there's a little, th- you know, I was a little bit in shock, by the way. And when you're in a video package and you're, they're scrambling and they're telling you, in 30 seconds we're back in video, JR, and we need, we're going to do it on camera with you and the king, and we need for you to tell the audience that Owen's dead. We're back in 15, 10, 9, 
Now, I'm processing. And uh, what do you, how do you handle that? How do you prepare to handle that? Well, what should I say to please the Internet or the dirt sheets? My God, I've got to make sure this is right. You kidding me? You kidding me? It's a human being died. And I get through it the best I can. I didn't remember what I said. Had no clue. Never seen the tape. If I write a book someday about my little journey, I may watch it. If I don't decide to write a book, I'll never watch it again. The next night we did our tribute show, they didn't know on camera me and King. I know I cried. I don't know what I said. Again, if I write a book, I'll watch it. If I don't, it's history. Don't care to watch it. But you get those questions on some of the Internet sites, and it's just not fair. Come on, guys. So I think the Internet, by and large, is a great tool for our business. I think WWE.com is a wonderful tool for WWE. And I think as time goes on, it's going to become even more part of our business. I think the e-commerce business off the dot-com is going to grow huge in a huge way as time goes on. JR, one of the questions that really fascinate people about the world of professional wrestling has always been what's real and what's fake. And that seems to be what people outside of wrestling want to talk about, the whole fake question. But even for fans of wrestling, the question of something being real or fake manifests itself in storylines that play on wrestlers' real lives. And as opposed to any other television genre or acting in general, in pro wrestling, Ric Flair is played by Ric Flair, Kurt Angle played by Kurt Angle, Mick Foley played by Mick Foley, and you, Jim Ross, play Jim Ross, JR, on screen. And I know you've said earlier that basically you come into your TV character as yourself or as a heightened version of yourself. But how do you think this plays a part? Because there is a private life that you have as well. And the division line between the real person and the character is much more hazy in the world of pro wrestling than it is anywhere else. I was just wondering if you would speak to that and how that drives the creative direction of the company to play on real life events as part of the wrestling text. I think when reality television shows started proliferating our television screens in a variety of ways. Uh, the WWE followed that trend with more reality-based storylines. My uh, colon surgery was a good example of reality-based storylines. I don't know that it sold a ticket. It did get a good rating. Uh, I guess that was the object of it. It got a great quarter-hour rating. And uh, but I don't know if it's holding tickets. I don't know if it got any talent established. I don't know what it did. Maybe it made Mr. McMahon be perceived as more evil, more maniacal, more unpredictable. Maybe for his character, if you want to look at it in that respect, maybe they helped embellish that somewhat. But I, I've always believed, and we've talked about this in the class for the last couple of days, you know, I've, I've got certain things I use as analogies. You know, John Wayne was a classically trained actor, but he was, he was, he was himself. He, he may have played himself over and over again. Ric Flair's routine, chops, knock down, face first, bump, turn upside down, down the apron, clothesline, bump. That's what he does. Uh, and I was telling the class today, you know, more than one time we walked into a Holiday Inn, lobby bar, Marriott, whatever, 20, 30 people sitting in there. Flair go in, order 100 kamikazes, pass them around. And the guys would ask for autographs, and he was... He was, I said, I think I used turned turn day trolling. He was fishing for women. And some of them would bite his hook, so to speak. Uh, 
and some would uh, not. And uh, some liked the kamikazes and some uh, did not. But you, you buy enough kamikazes, you throw your hook in the water enough, you're bound to catch something. <laughs> but he was, Ric Flair is an extension of himself in public. In quiet time, to shoot him, he can be very uh, uh, dignified, but he'd rather be nature boy because that's just personality. So at a bar, happy hour, go to dinner, off wrestling, off time, he's nature boy. So, Jr., you mentioned that the wrestling storylines are sometimes driven by events that happen in an actor's real life. So if Ric Flair is accused of a road rage, road rage incident, you'll also see that play out on screen so that Ric Flair, the character, is now having to discuss or having to confront his being in the news for road rage. Um, you don't see this play out in any other venue. You mentioned in class Hugh Grant and how if Hugh Grant, the actor, has something happen to him, you're not going to see this play out in his next film. I was interested in, in how you see that division playing a role in wrestling as well um, when it comes to incorporating these incidents into the wrestling text. Yeah, Hugh Grant's not done any movies with Divine Brown, <laughs> or whatever name was. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an issue. And, and some of the guys had that problem of separating fact from fiction and, and turn the switch on and turn the switch off. Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, uh, a guy like, you know, Randy Savage going into the checkout line and the express line with 12 items. They say, oh, you got 12 items, you only have 10. Well, what's he going to do? You know, is he going to clothesline them or do his voice <laughs> thing? Hit, hit the little clerk with the elbow? I don't, you know, you sh and, and they're guys that are close to that, that, that way, this, that are just, hey, easy. We're not, the camera's not rolling. Everything's fine. I just think that, you know, and myself, my, for, for me, I just go out and be me, for better or for worse. And obviously, when you're in a big arena with a lot of people and, the, and the, your headsets are loud and there's adrenaline flowing, I get a little more excited. I get a little louder. I sometimes get more emotional. Sometimes I don't ever think of myself as a wrestling announcer. I am a wrestling fan who works as a wrestling announcer at ringside, period. And so that's why my, my blogs or on the dot-com were successful. That's why my website is growing rapidly now because I'm honest with our audience and I relate to the audience because I'm not going to be some big shot. My dad said one time, I told my dad, he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was like 11, 12. And I said, I want to be a wheel. He said, well, you know what a wheel is, son? It's a round thing a dog pisses on. <laughs> That's what a wheel is. And I learned to be humble at that very moment. I don't need to reassess my values. He said, you'd be better off being a good human being and being really good at what you do. And my dad, before he died, I told a friend who told me, my dad's funeral, he said, you know, your dad told me a story about you. He said, you ran off and joined the circus and never came home. And I guess in a certain way I did. But it was just the entertainment business. It was a bizarre business in that respect. But you got another question there? Well, I, I want to give uh, plenty of time for other folks. You guys have any questions? Have anybody got anything? You got to come to the microphone or that guy over there gets mad. <laughs> Sorry. You got an ID? Sorry. It's a question. All right, go ahead. Two questions. Um, 
in discussing uh, Al Capone uh, being indicted for the Mira Scintilla. Was he cut your relative or something? No, sir. Oh, okay. um, of his criminal activity, I, you compared him to Vince McMahon, and I was wondering what Vince McMahon had done um, that actually does merit uh, lifetime in Supermax. <laughs> and uh, second question, how about those Boise State? Yeah. How about Boise hey, State? Thanks a lot. <laughs> Sit down. Uh, the, uh, I use the, the, the deal about, uh, the, and try to uh, analogy, maybe not a good one, that the federal government sometimes does a lot of stupid things. And for the federal government to spend hundreds of man hours and literally multi-millions of dollars on the McMahon steroid case was a, what did Grill say, a miscarriage of justice. It was ridiculous. And I, it, was, it is akin to the government not being able to, to prosecute Alphonse Capone for anything other than tax evasion. You've got to be kidding me. This is your decision-making? And I have issues with our government sometimes. Because uh, you go to places where you see children... And we do things with kids. I watched this piece. It was very emotional. There's a lot of those little kids in that Make-A-Wish video. They're dead. They're gone. I remember meeting them. They're, they're history. And there's kids that can't afford to come to wrestling. There's kids that don't have groceries. They don't have shoes. They, don't have the, they can't come to MIT. Get to give me a break. You know, they don't have the opportunity. And we're worried about, uh, you know, the... That, that stuff is just ridiculous. So my point is, is that I think that, uh, I don't know, McMahon has got his own cross to bear, and he'll, he's an interesting personality. He's a strong personality. Is he a lot different than Mr. McMahon character? Some days he's not. It's the way it is. But, you know, nobody makes me work there. I don't have ball and chain, so I, I handle it like a man. Um, first of all, I want to say it's, it's an honor to speak to you. Uh, the first WrestleMania I ordered was actually also WrestleMania 9, which, uh, as first Wrestle, huh? I was not. As first WrestleManias go, it's well, not commando, the best though. choice, but, uh, I thought you were great. Um, my content question is, uh, you mentioned your blog briefly, and, um, I wanted to ask you more about that because I think there's sort of, for a long time, there were sort of two areas of the internet. There was the WWE.com, which was trustworthy, but also sort of the company line. And then there are these, these internet dirt sheets, which are sort of more candid, but as you said, also have a lot of stuff that's completely unreliable. And I think your blog is actually sort of a middle ground that's appeared, because you're very honest and trustworthy, but you're also occasionally saying things that aren't necessarily the company line. You know, you think people should be trained more before they mm. get called up, etc. So I wanted to know uh, what writing that blog is like for you and also whether there's any pressure from the WWE to sort of censor what you say. So far, there has been no pressure from the WWE. Uh, it could come at any time. Uh, I find the blog to be somewhat cathartic at times. I enjoy the honesty. I, I again, put myself in the position of those consumers, those readers, those you know, I'm trying to sell some barbecue sauce and some beef jerky, and we have jrsbarbecue.com, okay? Gratuitous plug. That was jrsbarbecue.com for your, blo your website. Thank you. No. <laughs> I'm trying to sell barbecue and beef jerky. I'm going to open a barbecue restaurant in May, okay? So 
But under the guise of that, I do, I answer emails from fans. It's like having a talk show, call in, sports talk, whatever. WWE's next venture should be on Sirius or XM doing a weekly two-hour live talk show. I suggested that. We'll see how they use it someday. So I, I find it cathartic. I like being honest. If I can't answer something without causing a big tidal wave, I just ignore it. You know, I had to finally call people off about the Hall of Fame and Randy Savage not being in the Hall of Fame. It was ad nauseum. I don't select the Hall of Fame. I got nothing to do with the Hall of Fame. I got less Hall of Fame. I got the same Hall of Fame vote you got. Zilch. So him not being in the Hall of Fame, do I, dis, do I, do I believe he earned, he's earned it? Yeah. He believes he'll be in the Hall of Fame. I also suggest it would be a great year to bring him in at WrestleMania 25, which would be a big, monumental WrestleMania. That's two years from now. So I had to finally call off the dogs in that deal. I told the webmaster, I said, don't talk no more of that. So, unless, you know, but the honesty and the passion of the fans is they give it to me. I feel like I should reciprocate. If I can't answer your question uh, honestly, I just kind of won't go there. So I, I love it. So far, so good. Nobody's said anything from the office about it. I haven't pissed anybody off enough to where they're going to try to shut it down. But as long as I'm talking about I can talk about really a lot of stuff that they, they can't affect anyway. So I'm not really uh, too concerned about that. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be stupid with it, you know, but I am going to be honest. So if you read something, it's going to be the way I feel and the way I see it, not, well, the company want me to say this. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Nice hair. Thanks. Um, I've done some reading about character construction in wrestling, and I thought it was really interesting. You were talking about, you know, this sort of strict delineation between heroes and villains. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the female wrestlers. I don't know a lot about wrestling, so I don't know if their characters are constructed in the same way or if they have kind of a different place in the story. Good question. They used to be. The female wrestlers uh, in the like, uh, were, were featured in Lipstick and Dynamite. You know, Ella Waldick, Moolah in her younger days, Mae Young. Uh, it's hard to believe that Mae Young was getting a big splash by a large Samoan man within a year or two or three ago, and she remembered being in Memphis uh, on December 7, 1941, at a wrestling match when some little thing happened in Pearl Harbor. But that's no story. Uh, it used to be that the female wrestlers, they were heels and villains, and they, were, and they usually were dark-headed or, or red-headed, no offense. Well, thank you, redheaded. <laughs> Somewhat redheaded. And the good girls were blondes. And they were clearly differentiated. The, the way they walked to the ring, the, 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 the good girls were waving to all the guys and how you doing and all that. And the bad ones were walking with body English, like, you know, hey, a middle and all this, middle would do this and that and the other. Now, women wrestling essentially is dead. They can tell you what they, we got. We have a WWE women's champion. She's a talented girl. Works hard. This is not an indictment on them. It's just that they are asked to do more than wrestle. They are asked to provide uh, 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 a little TNA and sex appeal to a largely male audience. And so the commodity now, I don't know that we'd have anybody working there if there weren't breast augmentation. I mean, you know, you know, 
It's not like the old days. I used to referee in the early 70s, and there were some women that were badasses and, and that would play with you in the ring as a referee and hammer you around and slap you and hit with your elbows and pull your ears and, I mean, all kinds of pull your hair. They're the heels. And they were bad. I mean, you know, smoke cigars and blood veins in their arms. I mean, they were some bad. There were some. Mae Young was a, beat a lot of guys. She's 87 years old, still wrestles at Cam, believe it or not. So I think the whole rest of the female thing has changed because of presentation. The Japanese have some female wrestling still. That's kind of on the wane. It's just become our, our society has moved into where the women, unfortunately, are not there for their intellect, their ability to get into MIT. They're there because of their look and their sex appeal. So basically, are you saying that the character, there's less characterization? Absolutely. The individualism on the female side is a little bit, is, I think, considerably less than we see with the men. The, the most successful men are extensions of themselves. Stone Cold is just Stone Cold amplified. Dwayne Johnson, a.k.a. The Rock, is him, a trash-talking ex-Miami football player who's got, a, got everything, all the careers in the world. The girls, the most successful girls, had a great look and were used in a sexual way, and they identify the audience. And I'm not disrespecting Trish Stratus, who was a great girl. I hired her. And Lita hired her. They wanted to wrestle. And I think when they both saw where it was going, less emphasis on wrestling, more emphasis on sex appeal, more emphasis on uh, maybe acting. I think they probably said, eh, that's not exactly what drew me in it to the first place. I've been here X length of time. Uh, I need, you know, one wanted to get married, one wanted to heal from injuries, so they, bo they, they, they boogie. You. You're welcome. It's still there, just not the desire to do as much with it. There are still people interested. Well, I think that the people interested in being, I think, they're, I think they're, they're individuals of the female gender that would love to be wrestlers. It's the same issue I have with male wrestlers. When Chris Nowinski here was wrestling for, for us, and we hired Chris, Chris should have been in a territory for a year, and then another territory for a year, and then another territory for a year. And then maybe if he's really good, he would have been he would have come to work for me in the WWE on my roster, year five. How long were you in business before you come up? A year. Yeah. We killed him because he picked, he was picked too green. It's just not fair. When I hired Austin, he'd been in the business seven years. The Rock, different ball game. The Rock is extraordinary. You can't use the Rock as an example or the measuring stick. He is the exception, not the rule. Great actors. They do things before they get their big break. I don't know how many Oscar winners there have been that have in their first picture. I, mean, I, don't, I don't even know. Even Tatum O'Neill, who was the youngest Oscar winner, I think. Wasn't she? I think so. Well, it's like nine. She may have, I don't know if that was her first movie or not. But you can't go by that succession. You throw that out. You throw the high score out and the low score out, and you, what's the middle? So in Chris's situation, he was, he was hired. He had a Harvard degree. He was, it was unique. He was a football player. I like football players. They're tough guys. They're team-oriented. They're focused. He had an education. I got a smart guy. He can learn. So he's down in the hinterlands for a year and a half, and he, and we, he was brought up at least three years too soon. That's my story. I believe that. I'm not saying what he did was bad when he got here. 
but we weren't fair with him. We're not fair with anybody that comes up in a year or two. But because there are no territories, we have to create our own stars. There are not no seven-year veterans out there. There are a few, but there are a few, not many, that are out there that have four, five, six, seven years' experience. Yes, there's some guys at the Ring of Honor. I know that. And yes, I know there's some independents out there that probably deserve the break. And I wish I was able to facilitate it for them at this point. The WWE should scout all the Ring of Honor shows and all the major independent shows and give those guys the opportunity. And I'm sure that they will as time goes on. They're beefing up their developmental staff. The most important, I was telling uh, uh, Sam earlier today, it's amazing. The WWE has this amazing engine, this business model. With all these multifaceted platforms and the digital's growing and the cable's big and we're in 100 countries, we're in 17 languages and we're making pay-per-views huge, but we're running out of fuel. The fuel that runs the business is the talent. Simple. Simple. Personnel. Players win games. Great actors make average scripts really good. A great screenwriter with a great, great screenplay with average talent equals failure or mediocrity at best. Talent-driven business. Hopefully, we'll get to the point to where the talent's coming up a little bit later, not, not picked so green. Chris, unfortunately, had a concussion injury and that cut him down from uh, cut him short. But if he had not been hurt, he still was called up too early. But that was the, that's the issue you have between creative and talent management. There's that battle. When I was there, uh, Vince Russo wanted my job as a t head of talent, and he was a TV writer, did a pretty good job. But he wanted to control the talent. He wanted to write the plays, direct the plays, cast the plays, and only answer to the executive producer or the head honcho, Vince McMahon. And... Uh, he did a real good job writing television for longer than not and until he burned out. But, uh, you know, we butt heads. And I'm not saying I was right all the time. But I believe that giving guys a fair chance to be successful and bringing them in too early is not going to give them any breaks. Anybody else got anything? Uh, I was actually, uh, in third, you say that you haven't met anybody yet who's in broadcasting and all. I'm actually kind of interested in getting into the broadcasting industry and at this point uh, still learning. Um, for WWE and pro wrestling in general, um, what's the background like for most of the announcers now? Are they, are they like you who kind of work their way through the wrestling company or are they coming out of all over the place? I'm the last guy with a territory background. I'm the last of my breed. The other guys are uh, ex-sportscasters. Todd Pettengill was a weekend sports anchor in Tucson. Or Todd uh, Grisham. Todd Pettengill is a, is, a, is a disc jockey at WPLJ in New York. Uh, Michael Cole was a newsman for uh, radio, like CBS Radio, a big time deal. Um, so they're looking at guys that have some broadcasting experience, whether it be in radio or, uh, or cable or uh, TV, doing some local news or local reporting and things of that nature. And then you get a body of work, a demo reel, send it to the Human Resource Department at WWE and see where the cards fall. That's kind of where they've been getting their people. There's no more territories to get guys like me. I don't know if that's good or bad, but there's no territories. 
So I'm, one of the, I'm the last of my generation. There's, unless the territories pop back up, which I don't see them happening, all the guys coming forward to be a broadcaster are going to learn one style, one way, that's the WWE way, and they're going to, become, they're going to come out of you know, a sports desk someplace or a ESPN guy. And the guy that was going to replace me at one time does USC fighting, Mike Goldberg. does not shop, but he's not a wrestling guy. He didn't know wrestling. There are too many smart fans, IQ-wise, and understand the product. You can't BS them. So a young guy coming on, bebopping out there on the set, take JR's place or whomever, you've got to be straight with the audience or they'll, they'll resist you. Be yourself. Don't try to be somebody. I hope you make it. Hey, maybe the next guy on Raw. You never know. Hopefully. Give me another four or five years so I can build up my 401k and have at it. <laughs> All yours, brother. Thank you. Good luck to you. Hi. Uh, first off, I want to give a lot of thanks to you for coming out and uh, speaking in such a very small setting. Every time I imagine you, it's with 30,000 fans in a big arena, and you've called some of the greatest wrestling matches. Truly an honor. Um, I just have a couple of questions. First off, um, you mentioned earlier that we're running out of, that you're running out of storytellers in the business. And you also mentioned the cable TV changed the industry, going from, say, an hour every week of so-called squash matches um, simply designed to put the characters, uh, put the superstars over at the expense of less established superstars, to now every week we have four hours of programming with, with established superstars fighting established Actually, superstars. Five. five hours, yeah, excuse me. <laughs> and... Um, and you, uh, do you think that there's an oversaturation that you're forced to come up with new ideas every week on the fly that it's watering down the product and making every, making every story seem like it's been done before? I think, the, uh, I think we're on the cusp of, uh, I think we're, 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 our, we're our max as far as weekly TV shows. The two-hour Monday night show live, the one-hour Tuesday night show ECW, uh, and then the two-hour Friday night show on CW of SmackDown. I don't see us. I don't see how we could produce any more television, and do it a decent product. I think the big issue, uh, if you are writing a fictional novel, and you have a, a a wide variety of characters in your head that you can utilize, you can draw from, you can take your thoughts and put down on paper, and there are several of those characters you have a better chance of writing a successful book telling a better story. So it comes back to my point of our lack of main event talent depth hampers our storytelling. If we had more bodies, if we had Rock and we had Austin and we had all these guys, we're still there, five hours, cake. I do think it's challenging now, uh, and we're having Rob Peter to pay Paul to make things work. And uh, it's amazing the ratings are as good as they are. No, definitely. And uh, my second question, I guess, is uh, head of talent relations. You'd be qualified to answer this. From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, wrestlers are still classified as independent contractors. Right. They are. And so they, uh, from what I understand, you know, still pay for their own travel, mm-hmm. pay for their own lodging, food, et cetera, et cetera, expenses of the road. Um, and now that wrestling has been... Um, consolidated uh, to, uh, for all I know, one major company. 
you guys are doing, you know, billions of dollars of business. Um, is there any pros to um, actually making them employees? Yeah, making the yeah, so yeah. I guess for lack of a better word, for uh, providing health insurance. I don't, I don't or, know. That's that would be. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's been mm-hmm. discussed uh, for years. Uh, even the Jesse Ventura thought about trying to create a wrestlers union. And uh, as legend has it, Hogan found out about it, ran to Vince and told him, and Vince killed it, and uh, you know, or got rid of somebody. I don't know what happened. It was a, it's folk, you know, it's legend, folk, folk heroes. Hey, I can tell you this: there'll never be a, there'll never be a wrestlers union. I swear, I'll, I'll promise you. Here's why: not because of Vince McMahon, and not because of philosophy. You can take ten wrestlers, can agree to where to go to lunch together. <laughs> and if you get ten guys at lunch, then they and, he, and they can't agree what to order. So it'll never happen. But I, I, some of the things about travel, the WWE pays for the injuries and the medical deals. So medical has been added, and they're taken care of medically. That was, that's not happened in the past. They took care of you, right, medically? Stone Cold's neck, this guy's this, knees, everything. Secondly, international, or secondly, all travel is, some travel is paid for. Your airplane flights are paid for. Your rental cars are not. It's only only between if there's towns and driving distance. Yeah, if you drive, and generally you drive with your buddies and you share the cost, so it's not really bad. Yeah. It's not that dependent on the old two cents a mile like my story. But though, if, if the three or four of us are riding a rental car and the rental's 40, 40 bucks a day, we'll, we'll bust it up $10 a piece. Internationally, we pay for, the WWE pays for all travel, land, air, and food, and hotel. And the guys make a pretty good buck out of going abroad. So it's not as bad as it sounds. I just don't think there'll ever be a union... To say, will WWE ever make the wrestlers employees? I have no idea. Uh, I guess. I guess really, what I meant would there be any, you know, hypothetically, if this were to happen, would there be any advantages or disadvantages to the business, or is from the standpoint of the wrestlers or the standpoint of the WWE? I think it's. I think it really becomes an economic issue, and I'm not. A, I'm not a, a CPA or a financial guy. I think it comes back to basic economics. You know, would the guys do better? I don't know. I mean, they're still going to make their, what they're going to make. Would their tax situation be better? Probably, maybe. Uh, a lot of guys incorporate. There's advantages to that. You couldn't do that if you're an employee. So I don't know. I'm not versed enough in the financial aspect to tell you. Obviously, if I were one of the wrestlers, I would want the same benefits that Jr. has gotten as a, a corporate officer and having my taxes withheld, and having 401k, and retirement fund, and benefits. Yes, I would. Will it happen? I think not, but I could be surprisingly wrong on that deal. I just wanted to interject that there's only about five minutes left, and JR has to head somewhere directly after, so uh, we probably won't have time to get through all the rest of these questions, but maybe we can have time for a couple more questioners. I'll, sh- I'll give better answers. All right. Thank so, you. thank you very much. I don't know, I, your questions are good. I just I don't know the where it's going to end up. They're independent contractors as we speak, but it's not as bad as it sounds. It's just always been some of a curiosity. I yeah. appreciate it. You're Thank welcome. You very much. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, you said you had a really, um, or you felt you had a really good eye for talent, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering who you felt um, maybe lower down the roster right now or uh, in any of the independents or abroad or any, anything who you thought really had the ability to be one of the big stars over the next couple of years and if there are any individuals you, you're 
willing to name, you probably won't, who you feel have been uh, I, called I, uh, up too quickly. I put a lot of pressure on people when I name their names that aren't ready to be called up. Plus, it gets a lot of uh, undue uh, pressure on them. Uh, really, I've kind of uh, separated myself from that, that process because I'm not involved in it any longer. If I get immersed back into it, then I will be immersed, and I'm, I'm not really prepared to do that. Uh, there's a lot of guys on our roster that are not being utilized that are, have the ability to be very good. I'd like to see the roster stay like they are for a while, not bring anybody new in for a while. Leave everybody that's in the developmental area there so they get good and not bring anybody new in. And let the guys that everybody says, well, how come you're not doing anything with London and Kendrick? How come you're not doing anything with this guy or that guy? They, hey, if the roster doesn't change drastically and they're there, the, it, their time will come. It's inevitable. But uh, I don't know of any – nobody right now in the developmental program just jumps out at me as the next it guy. The light hasn't gone on to most of those guys. Could you bring Paul Birchall back because I knew him in England? I think Paul Birchall has a, a, a very significant upside. He, he was brought in too early. He brought in too green. You're welcome. So, so we're going to have time for probably just one more question. Uh, apologize to the rest of you all for, uh, for the musical chairs. If I'd known that there were going to be this many questions in the last five minutes, I would have uh, got the questions earlier. But uh, if you can Sounds uh, Paul. It is. That's right. I, I agree with Put, you, JR. Slam, slam me through this table after the <laughs> show is over. Uh, JR, thanks so much for being here. Um, you mentioned the WWE, WWF played a significant role in establishing pay-per-view as you know something people are willing to pay for, something people are used to buying. And last year, mixed martial arts, astronomical growth in pay-per-view, domestic numbers beating WWE's you know second-tier shows. And is there anything WWE's? How does WWE see? Where does WWE see UFC's appeal? And does it see anything it can do to get a piece? Is it the same audience? Is it? Is there any room there for WWE influence? I don't know that it's the same audience uh, as much as we sometimes think. Uh, I think the, w, the uh, USC had uh, got some guys and some rivalries hot. Uh, you know, the Kenny Shamrock having another cup of coffee and being the sentimental favorite. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, they got some guys that were, they, got some, they built some stars. And I think that they took advantage of that. But I don't think they've done anything revolutionary. Uh, they got a clearance on a cable outlet, good old Spike, you know, which is helping. You know, that's better than nothing. But, you know, they, they got a, the, their issue is real simple. They're going to be great as long as you're Tito, the Tito Ortiz's of the world and all the other guys uh, that you can name. I'm having trouble naming who I'm thinking about. They don't have any, they have a handful of stars. And it, it is star-driven business. Movies, sports, entertainment. I can tell you one Boston Celtic, Paul Pierce. Now, I used to be able to name the starting lineup just like that. No problem. Me too. Right? <laughs> and you live here in Boston. Right? You're, you're local. Yeah. I mean, one guy. You know, there's no more Bird. No, you know, no more, no more Mc, Kevin uh, McHale. Robert Parrish. who got smoke, smoke a pot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing about it is like, we can remember things about those people. They were stars, and you remember their stories. The, 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 the USC will be successful as long as they can build new stars. How do you build new stars when you could, they could be broken in half? And you know, Our shelf life for our stars is a lot longer than a USC guy. Oh, yeah. If you're a star in wrestling in the WWE, you could be 
My God, Hogan's 54 years old. He's still working. Rick Blair's 58. You can go see those 58-year-old guys in a, in a USC fight. Right? So the, the issue is, is that they do a good job and they've got a great product as long as they can continue to build new stars. The challenge I see them having is no different than Hollywood or sports or the WWE. Can you build new stars? Because there's no formula, no magic wand that's going to say, you're going to accept this guy as a star. I think for, for those of you all also who had questions in line, my greatest suggestion would be to go on JR's barbecue website and submit your question for his yeah. blog. And I'm sure if you mentioned that you were here and, and almost got to ask a question, he might even give it a little extra, no profanity. extra attention. <laughs> I, pre you. I appreciate you guys, uh, your attention. I had a lot of fun here the last couple of days, and uh, I hope that uh, some of the things I've shared with you give you a little bit better picture of the business. Business, great business. Really is, and it's been wonderful for me and my family. Uh, it's been uh, it's provided great opportunities, uh, and I learned. I grew up a lot in the business. I grew up. I always wanted to work WrestleMania and to work for the WWE, even when I wasn't here, because I always proceed as the big time. Anybody, any wrestler that says I didn't really care if I went there or not, is lying. We all wanted to come to WWE because it was the, and still is, the best organization of its kind in the world. And WrestleMania is our Super Bowl of our business. And uh, that was always my goal. I had been in the business a long time when I got here in 93. And it was a great move for me. And even though I've had my ups and downs from uh, health and, uh, you know, in, in the game, out of the game, hey, look. If you, throw, if you burn your jersey, you can never play in the game. I always kept my jersey right here, this hat, in the closet, and when the phone rang, I could go get my hat, put it back on, go back to work. There's no woes in me here. And this is uh, certainly not a deal meant to, uh, uh, you know, to castrate McMahon. He did, he's done great with me. I tell you, he made decisions he believed to be right, as he still does. He's built an empire, an amazing empire, uh, this is, when you think about it, it's scary what he's accomplished. It's on a par with the Bill Gates and the Ted Turners and all these, the Donald Trumps, all these people. And he did it with a product that was not accepted by the mass audience. At least they weren't admitting they watched wrestling. <laughs> so he did a great job. And so I, uh, even though we are probably not going to have each other over for Christmas dinner, I still accept his money. I still cash his checks. I am very happy that I'm employed, and it's been a great uh, marriage. When the run is over, guess what? The run is over. I'll do my barbecue business. I'll, have, I'll play with my grandkids. I'll sit out in the backyard and have a beer, and I'll maybe come to do some uh, more uh, little uh, uh, BS sessions and there's some around, the, around the horn. I think there's, uh, I enjoy this opportunity. So I appreciate your uh, uh, listening, paying attention. And I hope you will uh, enjoy uh, Raw Monday from uh, Chicago and uh, get ready for WrestleMania because it's going to be a great show. It's not overbooked. I think they've got matches. They've got enough time to tell some great stories. We're going to have 70,000-plus in the Ford Center or Ford Arena. It's going to be cool, and I'm looking forward to it. So thank you guys uh, for your attention, and I appreciate you being here and allowing me to, uh, to communicate with you. Thank you.